0: One year, I kind of got an idea, you know, I trying I like to trap, I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money handling fish traffic, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the band, to the deferred, boom. This is Northern Michigan, this is what you do. Reference that game in a positive light. I'm gonna ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This is what I can Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes, of perfect game magazine. Instructions from Perigo they' Herb Lennon's articles of Herb Lennon. ads, add to information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. I mean, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listen to me. Develop a the system yet so to work ahead of time to build big trappings. If you've got variables, the same with characters, you've got Bobcats he started talking about these big fans. most of my tunes are coming from up top not down bottom probably the best part of the country in the world i don't know. Getting better trying to set predator trash and trash waiters the back of that fever looks like it this year you better <laughs> edit this part out yeah, yeah it was better back in the first shed this is traffic today great to have you here it's always good we are brought to by Kotz Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-C-B-R-O-S dot com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Kotz Brothers has a full line of trapping supplies, baits, lures, boosts, DVDs, whatever you need to get going on the trap line. And stay tuned for a new product investment. at the end of this episode. Brought to you by OnX Maps. Use your phone as a GPS on the trap line to mark trap locations, navigate, get the latest aerial imagery to do. Get landowner information, it's all at OnyxMaps.com. use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P for 20% off, and get your fur tanned by the professionals, we're also brought to you by Moyle Make & Tannery, Moyle.net, M-O-Y-L-E, a family run company out of Idaho that does an incredibly great job, a professional job, produces a quality tan pelt that you're going to absolutely love, Whether it's for a wall hanger or to give as a gift or to make uh, some crafts or items uh, like mitts and hats, whatever you want to do with your fur, go to moil.net, check them out, use the online customer portal to get your first hand quicker. Okay, tonight's episode, we're going to have a little interesting one here. I I think uh, you're going to enjoy it. I think the new folks that are listening in, this is going to help get you up to speed. Uh, and for the long time listeners, it may be, be a little bit of a trip down memory lane. Uh, first off, I also wanted to mention, get your trapping lure, uh, trapping I still have lure in stock, long distance call, Birch river beaver lure that actually, again, I mentioned I raised the price on it and it's still been selling. Uh, I think it's sold more since I raised the price, uh, but it's just, uh, so expensive to, to get caster. Um, and, and, uh, there's only a limited amount that I trap here myself. And so when when that's gone, it's it's going to be gone for a little while. And I uh, actually just got a, a text yesterday from Vince from Washington with a picture of a beaver from one of his cell cams in, in uh, one of those Koro uh, suitcase-style traps. He did an ADC job and used Birch River beaver Glue and uh, caught the beaver lickety-split. So uh, predator... Uh, is out of stock predator plus which is essentially predator lure with uh some skunk essence it's a pretty strong long call type lure but also has gland component and a food component uh that is is still in stock uh muskrat madness or muskrat magnet um, sweetness which is the uh the the strawberry oil and honey and anise lure and uh yeah check them out uh trappingtodaystore.com Plenty of time to uh, get your lure before the season. Unless your season starts soon, then you better get on it. So, uh, lots of great feedback from last week's episode. The interview with Alvin Yates. Uh, actually, been getting a lot of good feedback from the, the recent interviews. Glad you guys are enjoying them. But uh, I, I'm really glad to, to get emails from people about uh, Alvin's interview because I, I'm. It's good to see that you guys enjoyed it just as much as I did. So just a lot of really good information and a good perspective. I, I really liked that interview. It was fun. Um, and I'm glad you did as well. What am I doing lately? Uh, ball joints on my trapping truck today, actually. I, I replaced the ball joints on the left side a few weeks ago. And, of course, as soon as, uh, as, soon as I got those done and rode the truck around for a few weeks, I think it went about three weeks and, and the other side went so that's a pretty long process, a do-it-yourself process. Uh, it's going a little quicker than the other side because I, I made all the mistakes on the other side and I learned a little bit, but uh, better than paying a mechanic to do it. So uh, working on that so I can get that thing out in the woods. And that leads to the age-old question and the question that we as trappers have been having to ask a lot more recently with the low fur prices is, how much money do you lose on the trap line? And it's like a constant tug and pull for me in both directions. So um, I love to trap. Uh, I want to trap as much as possible. I want to trap hard if I can, if I can find the time for it. But the harder you trap, the more money it costs. It costs, uh, it's opportunity costs and things you could be doing, projects you could be working on. It's gas, fuel, it's vehicle mileage expenses. I mean, anytime you run your vehicle on bumpy dirt roads out in the woods, Uh, you are going to put a lot of wear and tear on that machine, and it's going to break down. I break down every season. It just happens. It's, uh, well, not every season, but pretty, I could pretty much count on a a breakdown if I go hard in a season, and uh, usually those are expensive. You're, you're going to use a lot of gas. Um, You're going to, you're going to burn up a lot of money there doing that. A lot of time, uh, I get, I get to take days off of work to check my martin traps out in the deep woods, and but we love to do it, right? We love to trap. It. the The question, I guess, is, uh, I've got kind of this this uh, desire burning in the back of my mind that, especially when I talk to guys like Alvin, who we just had on the last episode, you know, most of us are full time folks. We we work a full time job, and we trap on the side. We trap before and after work, and on the weekends, where when and where we can find time to do so or were retired and the the retired folks uh, you know most a lot of the there's a lot of trappers that are in their mid 60s to mid 70s who are absolutely crushing it uh, doing just incredibly well they've got you know they've got the somewhat financial security of having a nest egg saved up they are still physically active and they have all of that time now Uh, where they don't have to go to a job, where they can prep for trapping season, get their stuff ready, scout, and go out and trap every day, uh, as long as they want to every day, um, and and handle fur and do whatever else. They've got the time, the luxury of time. And it's a struggle for me thinking about um, you can't can't live your life for retirement. You kind of have to live for now, But at the same time, the more money that you're able to save and put away, the greater the potential that you could maybe retire a few years early and do that full-time trapping. Uh, Enjoy yourself on the trap line, retired for several more years while you're still physically fit. And, uh, you know, like Alvin talked about last week, he... He was, I believe he said 60 when he retired. And, of course, he still does, you know, like forestry consulting and stuff like that and and, and side jobs. But, but essentially retired from his full-time job t- to where he could trap full-time at age 60. And he's, this, he's in his early, he's in his 70s. I think he's 73. And, uh, I mean, still doing an incredible job out there. But he notices it. He says, you know, he feels it. He feels his age on the trap line, and, and I, I mean, you have to expect that at that age, you're 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 getting older. Uh, you don't have the energy that you used to have when you were in your thirties, twenties, thirties, forties, and whatever. So uh, it it's a constant struggle. Uh, that whole decision, I probably talk more about it, but uh, I guess I better leave it at that. Just um, it, it it's always uh, it's always going in the back of my mind. How much time do I spend? Trapping now, how much time do I spend working uh, trapping a little bit less so that I can trap more in the future? I'm not sure if there's an answer to that, but uh, some people, the other, the answer for some people, uh, if the nature of your work is such, you can work a seasonal job and trap in the wintertime, where you can, some people uh, work really hard in the summer and they they make enough money in the summer to essentially pay for their expenses for the entire year and they can take a few months off in the winter to trap other people like I mentioned Tyler Seldon up in Alaska um, that that just live on almost nothing and take half the year off to trap but but sacrifice in terms of lifestyle where um, they can't spend a lot of money because they they just there isn't enough time and and enough of a, a steady job that that would pay for an entire year's expenses when you're spending half that year on the trap line. Uh, so, you know, if the fur prices uh, were different, that, that would change uh, the conversation, obviously, but, but we are where we are. So, uh, thoughts, just thoughts, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. jrodwood at gmail.com, j-r-o-d at w-o-o-d at gmail.com if you have any others. I also want questions, so if uh, I noticed that I haven't gotten as many questions this fall so far uh, from listeners, from new listeners especially and the reason for that as far as I can tell is I just haven't been asking for people to uh, uh, for people's questions. So I used to request that all the time and it was good uh, good chance to to sort of uh, help people out and at the same time not only help the person who has the question but but provide a little more information for other folks who might be, wondering about the same thing. So please send your questions. If you're, whether you're a new trapper, an experienced trapper, you know, a lot of you listening in are probably know more about trapping than I do. So, uh, you know, but, but we can always learn from each other. So um, I always, I get a lot of feedback in terms of like advice people give me, especially YouTube, man, there's a lot of people that know everything on YouTube, but, uh, but from the podcast, a lot of people, it's, it's not know it all type stuff. It's like, you know, just offering other thoughts on how they do things and, and it's, it's awesome because there's no, there's none of us that can't learn something from, from some of us. Uh, so, so uh, we're you know, like Alvin last week and like other people I've had on and other people that listen in and people I really enjoy talking with in trapping, uh, I want to learn more. And so if you have thoughts, suggestions, tips, advice, send them my way. But if you have questions, please do so as well. And in the next week or two, I'm going to do an episode on boxes Uh, somehow. I I don't know that I can cobble together an entire episode's worth of content on boxes. But I've had so many box questions that I feel compelled to do it. But I I would love to answer a few other questions. So if you do have uh, any other questions, please send them to me, jrodwood at gmail.com. And uh, I'll see if I can work them in. Okay, tonight's episode, we're gonna go over the uh, the podcast intro song. So the song that you guys hear every week at the beginning of the show, a couple two three minutes long, and uh, this is something that i I put together for the one hundredth episode. It was kind of the one hundredth episode sort of big thing that I did. Uh, I, I spent a bunch of time on it. I was actually going to do a different song, a new song for episode 200, but I realized that I'd spent so much time on the, fir- on the first one that uh, I, I just couldn't seem to gather myself together to uh, to make that a priority at the time. So I didn't. But uh, basically the song is composed of just some music I bought online uh, to use for the podcast. Just a jingle that I, I thought sounded kind of catchy. And uh over overlaying that is clips audio clips from different moments of the first 100 episodes of the podcast and i always assume that everybody's been listening in that whole time and so they have all the background there but they don't and i had a, a listener a new listener who just started onto the podcast and you know just listened to recent episodes and said hey by the way uh, just just meant, wanted to ask you, is there any way to get more information on those clips uh, that are in the introduction and where they come from, what episodes they come from, what the context is, so that we can go back and listen to those. So I thought, wow, I should have probably done that a long time ago, but (laughs) here we are. So what I'm going to do, I've just made some notes here on on the different uh, audio clips and Uh, who they're from and what episode you can go to to find more about them and I thought I'd just rattle on talk a little bit more uh, about those interviews those episodes and some of the memories that I have now obviously I did not have the time to uh, listen for you know 100 hours or so uh, to, to, to remember all the context and remember exactly when each clip was discussed in each particular episode, but it's going to be pretty close, so we'll we'll have fun with it, I think. And when I was putting this together, I kind of, I just grabbed, what I did was I listened to podcast episodes sort of passively while I was out working on the farm, listening on my headphones, and when I heard a clip that I thought would be kind of... Uh, I thought it was noteworthy, uh, let's say, uh, for sort of uh, something that t- that could be repeated and and sort of summed up an idea, some, something of that uh, nature. I would check the time that it, that it uh, played on that it was uh, aired on the podcast, and I would go back to the original audio file, and I'd find that time in the interview and I'd pull that clip out and I gathered together uh, a couple dozen maybe 25 or 30 clips and then I had to piece those together so that they kind of made sense I didn't just kind of randomly put them there I, I wanted them to flow I wanted them to flow with the th- this is why I took a lot of time I'm not an I'm not an audio editor type you know I I don't do this I, this is just like an amateur guy trying to put this stuff together in a a computer program, but I I tried to work them together to to sort of flow, to make sense, and to have sort of a, you know, a bit of a theme, and so what you'll notice is kind of the first several clips were kind of, uh, I guess I categorized them in sort of trapper beginnings, how people got started trapping, that's one of the questions I always ask people, you know, how'd you get started, and so I played some clips of people, how they got started, what, you know, what sparked that, um, why, they, why they wanted to trap. And then I kind of transitioned into clips that, that talked more about uh, learning and growing uh, on, in, in your trapping career, uh, things that kind of highlighted people's passion for trapping, uh, and then moved more into advice and knowledge that people have gained over the years that they offered to other trappers uh through the podcast interviews offered to me and and to other trappers and then a couple of fun clips mixed in as well toward the end but but it was kind of interesting how that that kind of played out as it it kind of it, it tells sort of a bit of a story I guess you could say um and and I only half-heartedly attempted to do that but I I felt like it came together pretty good um so so yeah the the very beginning, and and what I'm what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go through a bunch of these, and some of them I've lumped together because they're, uh, some of them were like one interview where I had three or four different notable clips that from that same person, and I, I lumped some of those together, and I'll I'll talk about them probably out of order in some cases, but we're gonna pretty much start at the beginning and and end at the end, so first off Garrett Volk one year kind of got an idea wanted to try trapping, that was Garrett Volk in episode sixty. Uh, Garrett is a trapper from Sherwood, North Dakota. He's in that northern part of North Dakota, this uh, little tiny town in farm country. It's a, I guess he called it the Mouse River Loop. It's an area where this river, the Mouse River, goes from Canada down into North Dakota into the U.S. and then loops back up into Canada. So he lives in that area. It's a very unique area. They have essentially no beaver. They can't trap beaver there, interestingly. Uh, so, so not too much water trapping opportunity. Maybe some muskrats when it's raining and the they've got some water. But uh, awesome, awesome coyote country. And Garrett was, uh, you know, did coyote hunting and all that, and then he decided to get into trapping, and he developed a real passion for it. And over time, he began buying fur, and he happens to be in a really good area with, uh, you know, for for s- essentially some of the best coyote. Pelts in the entire all of North America, really. So that sort of belt around North Dakota, some in South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, uh, maybe a little bit of Idaho, and uh, and up into Saskatchewan, Alberta. Uh, th- those are just the the best coyote pelts as far as quality, value, and uh, so Garrett has been buying fur, uh, buying western heavy coyote pelts for several years and uh he uh, he actually began buying fur and making fur items uh, not out of those western heavy coyotes but out of other other types of fur and other coyote fur Uh, i have sent quite a few of my beavers that i've trapped here in northern maine to garrett and he's made hats he's made beaver mitts gauntlets out of them, and so he's he's developed a, a pretty cool fur business. It's called Volk Furs, where he buys fur and he he sells uh, he sells finished product. Um, so we also talked with Garrett. We that was six, episode sixty was sort of his introduction to the podcast, and then he came back in episode one hundred and thirty nine and talked more about the coyote market, uh, what was going on at the time. Uh, that was about a year ago. And uh, the whole Canada goose situation at the time, of course, that's changed even more since we had talked with Garrett. But um, we talked about making fur items and all that. And, and so, uh, yeah, we had fun. That that was good. Probably have Garrett on again at some point. Uh, second clip. I like to trap. I like to make lure. And I like to write. Where do I go from here? This was Kyle Kotz from Kotz Brothers Lures. Uh, you know Kyle quite well if you listen to this show. We had him on a lot of different episodes. We had him on uh episode sixty four. That was where this quote comes from. Kyle was talking about how he got started. He was just a pup, man, just a kid. He was getting into hunting and he had I think he had an uncle that trapped and he uh he developed a passion for it really quick. He and his brother Kellen were making lure in their mom's kitchen with her her uh, equipment and stuff and, and uh, utensils and dishes and all that. Um, they he started the business really early, really young. He uh, he had a few guys that really helped him a lot along the way. He talks about that development of the business. Kyle is very business minded, very savvy. Uh, we text quite a bit, a fair little bit about um, about markets, about investing. He has a lot of good advice. I've learned quite a bit from him. Uh, I hope he's learned a little bit from me as well. And and it's not just a one-way text uh, <laughs> text message string. But uh, Kyle Kyle knows the trapping business in and out, top and bottom, uh, and uh, just a, a really good resource. He also knows the fur market pretty good. And uh, he was he was a long line trapper for a lot of years when he was kind of coming up and developing. Uh, as a trapper he was a young adult he didn't go to college he decided he wanted to trap and sell lures and, and write trapping articles and, and he did that for a while and, and uh, he grew the business into Kotz Brothers Lures we had that was episode 64 was kind of Kyle's story episode 77 was Iowa long line trapping I think that's where the uh, a later quote develop a system put the work in ahead of time to build a big trap line I think that was the Iowa episode seventy seven where he mentioned that. Episode seventy eight, Kyle talked about his long line trips to Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, that was where he mentioned uh, trying to check predator traps and chest waiters. I was asking him how, uh, you know, he he they had a lot of rain, especially in Mississippi when he trapped. And I was asking, he did a bunch of beaver trapping. I was asking how he uh, how he did that beaver and otter trapping and mixed in you know coyotes and bobcats and whether there were issues with you know not just focusing on one thing and trying to trap everything uh, episode 79 kyle talked about his adventures trapping in new mexico uh, he mainly trapped for coyotes out there in new mexico he ha- did a dvd on on that trap line that was started off that was mostly on public land unfortunately you know it looks like that's going to be illegal now new Mexico's banned trapping on public lands long story uh couple episodes ago we talked we talked about it a little bit with National Trapper Association president um, John Daniel so you can tune into that but you probably listened to that already if you're a new listener uh, and then finally in episode 80 Kyle turned the tables on me he said why don't I interview you and I, and talk about how you got started trapping and I, I thought that was that was pretty neat it was fun. And Kyle asked a lot of questions that I never really thought about. So, so, it, you know, I could sit here and tell you about myself as a trapper, and you'll probably hear the same old story every time, and you'll get bored of it. But coming from someone, you know, f- from an outside perspective, it was good to hear uh, Kyle ask me some questions that really made me think and, and understand a little bit more about about myself and share a little bit more with you guys. So that's episode 80. Next clip is, stri- knew I'd be able to spend more time in the woods, and this same person said a little later on in the intro, represent main trappers in a positive light. That was Cole Porter, and that was episode 58. That was one of the early interviews that I did, and Cole and I talked, it was kind of when I was still learning how to interview. Uh, the, the audio quality and all that might not have been, been quite so great, but... Uh, we made it work. Um, one of the things that I wanted to get from Cole was it, he 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 came up in kind of the next generation behind me. He's, well, maybe not the next generation, but he's about 10 years younger than me. And when, when I got started trapping, the internet was kind of there, but it wasn't really a big resource. Most people, you know, a lot, rural people didn't really have it in their homes. When Cole came up, the internet is widespread and you have it everywhere and you're in not only in your home but in your on your phone wherever you go and cole learned how to trap essentially from the internet and so he talks in this episode 58 about online resources to get started trapping and and different things that he's found that have been useful where he's learned a lot different youtube channels websites uh, facebook groups and things like that and so that uh, Cole, that that was a, a fun episode. Cole, also, you know, we went to a couple of times to Neil Olson's Trappers Weekend. We we had, uh, I think, two or three episodes where we uh, Cole and I just sat down either in the car or at the campground, just talking trapping uh, on on our way from to or from Neil Olson's or at Neil Olson's. And then Cole rode around on my trap line with me and we, we recorded uh, some uh, in the truck riding around the woods too. So uh, it's always fun to talk with Cole. I also had him more recently, um, episode 184. We talked about uh, sort of just a trapping season recap from 2020. 185, we talked about advocating for trapping and joining your trappers association and some of the work that Cole has been doing in that regard. And then episode 186, we talked about bear trapping. That was a real popular episode because it's kind of a unique topic. So uh, Cole's been on quite a bit. Next clip, I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. That was me. If you couldn't uh, recognize the voice, that was episode 80 when Kyle Kotz interviewed me that was a unique thing between Kyle and I because when Kyle started uh, w- was really doing a big part of his trapping Kyle was was uh was not in school he was not working a full-time job he essentially was decided to go on his own and trap and start his own business and the fur market was a little bit better he was able to uh make some money doing that and my start in trapping really contrasted that and I, I mentioned to Kyle that you know I never really had the chance to long line I was always in school in some former fashion and I went straight from school to a full-time job and so my trapping has always been balanced before and after work before and after school uh, weekends vacation holidays whatever so th- that was that was a I, I guess that's something that separates a lot of us you know the original, big timer trappers from the weekend warriors is, is some of us just uh, chose a different uh, avenue in life. So that, that was uh, me kind of talking about how the more I trapped, the more money I lost and, and I didn't care. I I would have, I would have spent my last penny on gas money to, to go out and check those traps. I just, I loved it so much. I had such a strong passion for trapping. Uh, it was, it was hard to, to slow me down and I was I was a college student high school student at first and then a college student and I I really didn't have a lot of money so I was quite limited in the traps that I had and and how far I could go and all that but it but I was able to make it work getting the traps out there is the hardest part I think with them that is Episode eighty-seven. And that's Vince Lishka from Washington. So I, I always I always listen to that quote, and I think I wonder if people know what he's talking about. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, <laughs> and of course, Vince is talking about cage trapping. So because of the crazy rules in Washington, and they banned a lot of types of trapping, Vince is essentially restricted to using cages. Uh, cages for. Um, for bobcats, that's the primary land trapping that he does, and then the coro style traps, suitcase style traps, or Kate Comstock cage type traps for a beaver. And so, uh, th- what Vince was talking about is, you know, there, you know, there. Of course, there are a lot of challenges, but the biggest challenge that he sees in his trap line in Washington is. To, just moving physically moving those cages and getting enough of them out in the woods uh, in the backcountry up in the mountains in that bobcat territory you know he's on he'll either be on atv maybe a snowmobile maybe a pickup but uh, it it is just it it is a task yeah because those cages are heavy and they're bulky and you got to pack a long ways a lot of times you got to get off the road quite a ways and uh, that that is a huge challenge so it's a little wake-up call on the logistics of trapping certain certain types of trapping i know pat in massachusetts has kind of this a similar deal although he's got a lot more roads there and and access to places but still heavy bulky uh, cage traps to carry around everywhere um had a lot of fun in that episode. I gotta gotta talk to Vince about getting him on again. I'm gonna make a note of that, um, cause uh, that was that was actually quite a while back now. But Vince and I text uh, back and forth a little bit. Uh, it, just a great guy, uh, fun fun guy to to chat with. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. I'm not gonna try to do the Southern accent, cause I I would uh, I would terribly botched that but that was Chip Davis from episode 71 and a couple of other quotes from that same episode was uh, mentioning Wolfer Nation, Trapping Radio and he started talking about these big pans. So Chip is a trapper from Mississippi uh, I I found out about Chip because he is, uh, he is the owner of Expand-A-Pan Traps so Chip makes the oversized trap pans, a pans uh, that you can retrofit to basically any any trap any popular model of trap that's out there. Chip is also good friends with Clint Locklear from the trapping radio podcast and Wolfer Nation website, Predator Control group, all of the uh, really super popular trapping lures. Clint uh, has been a professional trapper. He, uh, he was getting into it, again, in that, that a little bit earlier when you there was a fur market, <laughs> to some extent, not a great one. Um, big, big numbers guy, full-time trapping for a long time, wrote books, did DVDs, uh, an excellent businessman. Probably, uh, you know, a, somewhat in comparison to, to Craig O'Gorman when it comes to being able to market yourself. Uh, in the trapping industry, just uh, just incredible. But Chip has been uh, on Clint's podcast, and he has actually hosted that podcast as a guest host's quite a few times. And so that's kind of how I get to to uh, hear Chip quite a bit. And I thought, well, geez, it'd be great to have him on. And so we talked about uh, how Chip got started trapping, and and one of the things that he mentioned was this old guy w- was sort of his mentor his his trapping mentor and taught him how to trap and uh chip would go go run traps in the morning before school and then he'd leave the critters in the back of his truck in the high school parking lot and then the old timer would would uh would come by and pick him up and work up the fur during the day while chip was at school and then they'd go go back after school and set more traps and and uh and continue on so so that was cool Uh, The, he started talking about these big pans thing was, was Chip talking about Craig O'Gorman's work uh, with, with larger trap pans and increasing the kill area uh, in, in those coil spring traps and, and how that sort of philosophy developed. It's actually pretty controversial in certain circles. A lot of people talk about toe catches with big pans. They talk about uh, misses maybe. And so Chip goes into detail on that, on his theory, uh, I mean, of course, obviously, you sell pans. You sell big pans. You're you're gonna want to uh, want to uh, be in support of, of them being more effective. But I think I I do know that Chip, honestly, uh, he did his research ahead of time. He did a bunch of work on in testing to to see if there was something to that, and and he felt that um, that those misses are not related to pan size. They're they're more related to to other factors, um, potentially, uh, you know, I'm I don't remember our exact conversation, but I think certain things like uh, like pan tension, like uh, solidly bedded trap or lack of a solidly bedded trap, and, and a number of, of other things. But um, th- the whole big pan thing, we had that conversation. We had we talked about chips background and all that, and, and uh, it was it was a great interview. We're gonna set traps like. No matter what, <laughs> that was JP Wilson from episode ninety five. Uh, we had JP on f- both episodes ninety four and ninety five. JP at the time, uh, we I got to know him from Neil Olson's Trappers Weekend. He's good friends with Neil. He, JP's been going there since he was a teenager. He learned to trap. Uh, he he kind of um, he got going around the time. When he spent some time around Paul Grimshaw's fur shed in upstate New York and learned a lot from Paul, got got excited about it, and got going, hit the ground running. He started a lure business, J.P. Wilson's uh, Sure Thing Lures. He, he did pretty well with that. He trapped heavily. But uh, J.P. did what we all do, what I did as well. Um, Get a good job got married, and had kids, <laughs> and uh, and so he no longer uh, sells the, that lure commercially, and he he traps still, but not as much as, as before. Um, I know he was, a while back, I remember talking to him, he was running an excavator in the summer, and then when he got done with that, he would, he would go on and trap hard. Um, I don't know how much uh, he's trapping, but I know he's I believe he's got some plans with Neil this, this coming season. Um, and we'll have to catch up with JP again at some point, I hope. But yeah, um, th- what that was, was JP talked, uh, episode 94, he talked about how he got started trapping. Um, I'm actually, uh, I also have, uh, I get to mention this, that other quote he had. He had several quotes. Um, trying to learn something from these legends and the back of that beaver looked like it had been sheared. So those are from episode 94. And what happened there was JP's talking about how he got started trapping. He was learning and all that. And uh, he went trapping uh, on a beaver line with Neil Olson and Paul Grimshaw. And JP's just a kid here. And he said, here I am trying to learn something from these legends, these, these old timer trappers, these long liners that uh, are real experienced and, uh, he had just such a funny episode where uh, they were parked on the side of the road early in the morning, first stop, and uh, they were right next to this house and the dog was barking and they are going down the bank to check beaver traps and, and they get the beaver out of the trap and, and uh, JP grabbed the beaver and hauled it up the bank and they were in a hurry and he set the beaver on the guardrail and went to go get something else and of course it was a freezing cold morning. And that beaver's hair all got stuck onto that guardrail. Do You know, like uh, when you stick something wet on something metal and it's 20 degrees out, it froze solid. Um, and he went to pull that beaver off the guardrail and all the guard hair just stayed right there. He said, the back of that beaver looked like it had been sheared. <laughs> and- and this kid just felt so so bad he was neil neil tells the story too and he was like he was he was almost gonna cry and he felt so terrible and he, i think the first thing he said to Neil was i'll pay you back i'll pay i'll pay you back for the beaver and neil just laughed <laughs> it was uh it was something else but uh but those are the type of memories you you uh uh we pick up on the trap line man uh, um just funny stories like that. So, so that was JP and in ninety, uh, in uh, ninety four, and then in episode ninety five, we're gonna set traps like no matter what. JP was all set up to go to New Mexico. He had watched Kyle Kotsa's New Mexico, uh, coyote trapping DVD. He said he he basically wore that DVD out DVD out and had to buy another one. Um, he watched it probably more than any other human being. Kyle jokes that JP was. Like half the business, half the DVD sales for that DVD were to JP. He just, he absolutely was, like me with Alaska, he was fixated on going to New Mexico trapping coyotes. And uh, he ha- he set it up and he, uh, he got all geared up. He got permission on a ranch. Uh, he had a guy that was going to show him where to go. Uh, I think he was going to stay with the guy. Uh, I can't remember the exact details, but JP and his girlfriend packed up and they drove out to New Mexico from New York. Uh, And they got there and the guy was nowhere to be found. It turned out he had an emergency and he had to have some operation or something. He was in the hospital. And so they didn't really know what to do. And at the time they couldn't get a hold of the guy so they didn't even know what was going on. And he's like, well, we drove here. It, we're going to set traps no matter what. <laughs> and so they had to figure out, you know, they, I think they stayed in a hotel for a couple of nights, but they were spending so much money staying in a hotel. It didn't make sense, but they were going to trap. They'd gone there to trap and they were going to trap and it didn't matter. Come hell or high water, they're going to trap. And and I felt that that was like it highlighted the attitude that a lot of us have that we, when you want something bad enough, uh, especially when it comes to trapping, uh, you find a way to make it work and it, and it all did work out. And, uh, and uh, they, they had a successful trip. But, but that was JP. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. Now, this was Jim Furman from episode 75. And if you listened uh, along, I, this was the first time that, that I would talked, that I had interviewed Jim for the podcast. And I later on ended up going to Alaska with Jim to trap in the bush out of a cabin for a couple of weeks and you can listen in uh episodes 119 through 122 and those were uh, all about that trip i think 120 was recorded on the trap line in the bush Uh, the other episodes were kind of uh sort of pieced together either before or after the trip Uh, well i guess they're they're probably all after the trip but anyway um that that was uh, quite an experience, and it, it was uh, – Jim probably figures he made a mistake because it got me obsessed with trapping up there, and I can't stop thinking about it and bothering him about it and bothering Josh about it. Um, it's a problem. But anyway, um, that that was an incredible experience. Uh, some of these guys trapped these areas for generations. I think if I remember right, Jim was talking about these trap lines in in the wilderness up there that – have been passed down uh, from from family members, you know, father to son, and uh, a lot of people, outsiders that don't have experience with it, think that well, these guys, you know, just trap an area and then they leave because they get, catch all the fur, and and he was trying to express that you know these people are on the land for generations. They they're managing their they're not over trapping areas. You know they they are taking care of the land uh, because they want. The, this trap line to uh, t- to be there long term and to br- produce for him over the long term and I, I get a couple more from Jim there later on I think I'm just going to wait and get to them in a minute uh, got through the fur boom thank god uh, this was Eric Martin from episode 93 the other quotes from Eric were uh, instruction from Craig O'Gorman and you got berry bushes sand and turkeys you got bobcats so Eric was talking uh, a combination of main trapping and western trapping. Uh, he, I actually just talked with Eric here a couple of weeks ago at the main trappers fall rendezvous. And uh, it was good to catch up with him. Eric's actually the person that inspired me to put together the uh, Walter Arnold book. And I'm I'm glad he kind of got me going on that because it was a great project and I think it's uh, it's been been really fulfilling and and uh, good to bring that history back to life. Eric is a, a analytical trapper, he's a thinker, he's a learner, he's one of those guys uh, like Alvin Yates that is never too old, never too experienced to learn more and is always trying to pick up more information. He's just like a he he's he's like a kid at these conventions just learning and and asking questions and and bouncing ideas off people, it's incredible. It's uh, refreshing to talk with them. Um, so he talks about his, you know, growing up poor in Maine and and learning to trap and developing a love for trapping. Reading, reading all the old fur fishing game magazines and and articles and and uh, and then moving on to taking instruction, uh, becoming a better trapper and trapping. He ended up trapping bobcats out west. Uh, Eric's one of those guys also who's older, but is also still in really good shape. Uh, Someone that I hope I'm in that good of shape when I'm his age so I can continue to do do that type of trapping. And he still talks about going out west and doing more trap lines. So hopefully he's got at least several more years uh, in him to do it. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. (laughs) This is John Chagnon, episode 63. John is from Northern Michigan and uh, he is the, uh, basically he's the guy behind PCS Outdoors. Uh, John also makes and sells Lennon lures and Herb Lennon's articles, Herb Lennon's ads were everywhere. That was John's quote later on in the intro. Uh, John is, uh, is a really passionate trapper. He's, uh, he's a guy that has kind of done it, he has pushed the boundaries of trapping before and after work <laughs> or taking vacation to trap. He's just, he really loves it. He, he does it, but he's also very busy. Um, he, he was basically an accountant for this aviation company in Michigan that sold aircraft parts. And uh, over during the recession, uh, they, the company was having tough times and not a lot of money coming in. And they were looking at laying people off. And they were asking for any ideas, uh, anyone that, that uh, has any thoughts on what we can do, branch out, diversify, do something so we don't have to lay people off. And John pitched the idea of a trapping supply company. <laughs> and they bought it. They bought it. So uh, they invested, and they developed an arm of PCS called PCS Outdoors. Uh, that was kind of John's brainchild, and uh, he has led the way with PCS Outdoors ever since. Been a very successful company, and you see their ads just about everywhere, like Herb Bunnen's old ads. Uh, and I had asked John the question in this interview, uh, was it difficult for people? Did you have any trouble with people like going from making aircraft parts to making trapping supplies and dealing with trapping stinky trapping lure and all that stuff and any issues he said, this is northern Michigan, this is what you do. And he was expressing that, hey, these people these are rural people, they're, they're woods type people. They, they're used to it. you know and and, uh, and it sounds like they had uh, they have a really good crew of hard-working people that were just thankful to have a job at the time. and so uh, it, it's a, a really good success story there. Do you know everything? Let me. I want to ask you a question. Do you know everything? <laughs> this was episode seventy-three, and that was me. Uh, and the episode title was "Do Fisher Kill Lynx?" And I had I, I had this bug in me for a little while because uh, there was a really fascinating research study out of my backyard, essentially my trapline. Not far from my trapline, there was a bunch of work done on radio collared lynx. And uh, the sources of mortality of those links, and there was an in- incredibly high uh, mortality rate from links being killed by fishers. And I talked to the biologist that was th- that headed up this study and put the report together, and it was really credible information. Um, it was it was actually it's kind of groundbreaking stuff, really. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you just never would expect to be the case, and and so. I I uh I discussed it on Trapper Man and there were some people on Trapper Man, one in particular, that just came back with a, a complete dismissal of any possibility of of a Fisher being able to kill a lynx and and uh and, and it kinda got out of hand, like just name calling and everything. I was like, really? And and it really reminded me that uh, there are some people uh, as you know as nice and pleasant as they can be and 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 all that there's some people that think they know everything they're experts they're legends in their own mind and, and that frustrated me and so uh, we talked about that we talked about the whole idea of, of when you know everything you're basically done you're done learning and uh, it's not a good place I don't think to be and and then we talked about the whole uh, information and, and the the study and and uh, what that might mean, you know, what that might mean for us as trappers. I, I think the more we can learn about these fur bears, uh, the the more effective and successful we can be as trappers. The next few quotes, I'm going to lump them all together. This ought to be fun. Ask questions without asking questions. Everybody listen to me. Most of my coon are coming from up top, not down the bottom. This was uh, a series of three different episodes 72, 74, and 76. And this was Ron Jones from New Jersey. Ron is a wealth of information. I had a lot of feedback from uh, those three episodes with Ron. Uh, he, it was almost hard to interview him because I, I, uh, he spent so much time asking me questions and, and uh, that he knew the answers to to try to get me to think. And uh, I, I was actually trying to uh, uh, transition to the proper questions to ask him. And he, he kept turning the tables on me. Uh, but, but Ron is at, at heart a teacher. Uh, he is a very effective teacher. And Ron knows more about intricacies of, of snaring and dog proof trapping than probably anybody I know. Um, Newt Sterling Uh, Maybe, maybe is in that league as well, I would say. Um, And there's probably a few others, but just a real knowledgeable guy and a real good teacher and communicator. And he shared so much information in those three podcasts. Um, 72, he talked about his animal damage control work, snaring in New Jersey, why they got snaring so much in New Jersey and and, uh, why they became became such advanced uh, cable hangers in New Jersey is basically because they lost foothold traps. Um, but they're able to do a lot with snares, cable restraints. 74, Ron talks about more snaring and then advanced dog-proof methods. And so a lot of dog-proof trappers just uh, basically say, you know, just toss some bait in and toss the thing on the ground and walk away. And, and that'll catch, Ron has the, you know, I think it's the 80-20 rule. And sure, that'll catch 80% uh, of the animals and you'll be quick and effective but Ron figures if you spend another minute at your set to construct something more advanced, you can catch the 80% and the 20%. <laughs> and so he talks about that. He talks about some types of sets that he uses. He has one where the dog proof is essentially like a dirt hole set. Um, most of my coon are coming from up top. He talks about coons running up along the banks and how he catches a lot there. And uh, when, where people think that they're just down by the water and, um, And then 76 talks about lure and bait strategies and being more advanced and uh, like using lure and bait in cages and different types and and all that. Just uh, off-season work, uh, methods, location, all that stuff. Just uh, really good stuff that that was Ron Jones. This ought to be fun. He said it was fun. Volumes of Fur Fish and Game magazines. This was Chris Pope, episode 59. And Chris... Uh, started the podcast Coyote Trapping School or Coyote Trapping School that was kind of neck and neck with with trapping today. Uh, He started a a little ways after I don't know, must have been a year or two after I started this this podcast. And uh, Chris actually stopped podcasting Coyote Trapping School uh, almost a year ago. So November 2020, I think was his last episode. He's moved on to other things. I think he's he's doing more uh, animal damage control work. Uh, maybe Chris was smarter than me and and realized that the time that we were both spending on producing our podcast, he could make more money uh, growing his business uh, in, in animal damage control. And uh, so yeah, that's that's something I battle with every day. Actually, somebody recently told uh, sent an email said you just you should get more more advertisers, more sponsors and and uh you know you i could certainly make you know I can make more money. you look at trapper's post or trapper predator caller the the magazines trapper's world you know there's there's what thirty thirty forty advertisers in the magazine in a monthly magazine, and I have uh three on a weekly podcast and i i never i didn't wanna dilute the user experience and and all that with having too many ads. Uh, I could probably put, you know, six or eight up there and double, triple my money. Uh, But I I just, I don't really want to do that. So, (laughs) Uh, but it's a thought. It's a thought for sure. Um, We are trappers ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. This was Mark Taylor from Fur Harvesters Auctions, episode 61. And Mark talked all about fur grading. I think this is one of the... uh, perhaps a little bit underrated podcast that uh, I don't mention a lot that you know you know it's it's not about trapping methods or anything but Mark is one of the main fur graders at Fur Harvesters he handles so much fur the course of a season and he goes into deep 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 detail on fur grading and I learned I learned as much in this episode probably as I have in any episode Of the podcast, and I learned, I learned why and how fur is categorized into different lots, and we all understand, yeah, you know, prime fur grades better than this. Certain colors uh, are more desirable than others, but uh, the actual uh, lotting process and how the lotting process changes depending on the quantities that are available, and you know, ones and twos. Select ones and twos can sometimes be lumped together, sometimes split apart. Depends on the demand for that item. It depends on the market strength. There's just so many variables uh, taking place. But Mark basically goes from when you ship your fur to fur harvesters. uh, From that point, when they get the fur, what they do with it, and how it goes through the entire process to the auction and getting sold and shipped off to the buyers um he he talks about that entire process and how they handle it at fha um they were uh if you listen back for harvesters was a sponsor to the show a great sponsor i loved having him um of course the fur market tanked nafa went under under went out of business um we are trappers ourselves that was mark's talk talking about how uh the vast majority of fur harvesters employees are trappers and he feels that that uh, provides an advantage and that's important because they're representing trappers and so they understand what it takes what the effort is that's involved in producing a quality pelt they un- they understand a lot of those details and i think it it makes them kind of want to work harder uh, on behalf of trappers uh, to uh, to to get you know to market that for effectively and get the most value that that they can out of it but it's a tough market especially in in poor times, uh, in poor fur price periods, uh, the auction house is a very very difficult market. Um, I I would love to have them on as a sponsor in, again in the future, but that's going to depend on what the market does and what the advertising budgets look like. Um, but but I would encourage folks just to to send a little fur there. You know, uh, I'll send a little fur sometimes. I, recently, I've sent some caster. Uh, and I'm selling so much beaver lure now I don't know if I can say, i think uh i think I have to save more caster but uh yeah that it, just just send a few pelts there even if you're just gonna break even just to keep the auction house in business because we we need to have alternative markets for our fur uh and if we lose the last major auction house um that's gonna put us in a pretty tough place. Uh, when you don't have options, uh, you're pretty much at the whim of who, whoever is left to to buy your fur at whatever price they want. So uh, more more buyers is better. But that that was Mark from episode 61, really informative one to go back and listen to. Best Martin country in the world, um, and we better edit this part out. <laughs> that that was uh, that was toward the end. That was Jim Furman, and uh, one of the things that that he said kind of. Uh, was was really amazing to me uh, Jim was a, a young man had a family he had he had moved to the bush of Alaska to trap he'd never gone to college um, he he wanted to trap he just had a really strong passion for it wanted to trap wanted to be in the woods and he had a family and he was times were tough didn't have a lot of money he scouted this area out. he'd heard that it was good Martin country. He wanted to try Martin trapping. His brother flew him in they, they him and his brother built a cabin. Uh, his brother flew him in and he trapped on foot uh, for six weeks and he caught over a hundred Martin on foot and this was when Martin were Martin prices were good. Um, he pro- probably best, best Martin country in the world. I don't know if, know if it gets any better. And and I honestly don't know if that can get any better. And he actually told me the name of the, the creek. Uh, and, uh, it, and and that was where we better edit this part out. And we did. <laughs> we did because he, uh, uh, sadly, uh, Jim's brother passed away in a plane crash um, a little while after that. And they had to, he had to sell, he ended up selling the trap line, Jim did. And uh, somebody else has it now and out of respect for that guy, he didn't want to say where it was. So um, but but yeah, and that, that area is still producing Martin to this day. There are places, places like that, places where guys like me uh, dream of someday going to. So with that, guys, um, those are the first hundred episodes highlights. Um, I, I started off. I didn't do as many interviews early on and then I kind of transitioned to doing more and uh in the second 100 episodes i think i did probably more interviews uh overall and there are tons and tons of good quotes that uh that you didn't hear about these are just the first 100 and uh if you if you have just started listening in i hope that gives you some places to go for episodes that you might be interested in uh and and uh check out the second 100 because there's a bunch there too and maybe someday we'll put together a new song but Anyway, uh, that is it for this week. Let's get into the Cots Bros message of the week. Cots Bros wants you to know about their new and improved pan covers. These are wire screen pan covers. Uh, Pan covers are, we actually, I'm going to tell you which episode to listen to for pan covers, more on pan covers. Episode 114, I go over all the different types of pan covers and the Pluses and minuses of each, but the wire screen pan covers are one of the top choices uh, for you on the trap line. They are, uh, they're real durable, they're high quality, they're, they're not the cheapest ones, but they, they, a lot of the top trappers tend to uh, gravitate towards the, the aluminum wire screen pan covers. Uh, these pan covers will help you increase your catch uh, it increases the catch area within the pan it also keeps obviously keeps dirt from getting underneath the pan and, and causing misfires um, these are available in two sizes and they're new and improved because instead of cutting them out and punching them by hand they are now machine stamped and the edges are are curled uh, so the edges are not raggedy and there's a they're stamped with a slot um, to, uh, to, to fit the dog, and there's also a place, it, they're really easy to cut out a notch uh, for, if you have dogless straps, you can cut out a notch, for, uh, a spot for the pan notch to set, to go through. But yeah, these are these are top of the line pan covers. Go to cotsbros.com, what I like to do is use the search function and just type in pan covers, and you'll see them pop up. I'm looking at the aluminum wire screen, number three coil spring size. Aluminum wire doesn't rust, adds crucial kill area to the pan, and of course keeps dirt from under the pan. Be sure to crease cover around pan to prevent buckling. Fits all number three coil spring traps. For dogless traps such as Montana's or Montgomery's, just cut a slit in one side to clear the pan notch. Now machine stamped with no sharp edges. All edges are folded for supreme rigidity and increased kill area packaged in a resealable bag. So those are the new product from Kotz uh, If you need some pan covers, I encourage you to go check them out, kotzbros.com. All right, guys, with that, thanks for tuning in. As always, uh, remember to email me with any questions that you might have, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. Until next time, keep on talking, trap and keep on thinking, trap, and We'll catch you on the next episode.